The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. If you're planting a fruit tree or designing a food forest, one of the first things you're going to ask yourself is what type of fruit you want to grow. Maybe you love apples or apricots or mangoes. You'll decide what types of fruit you want to eat, and then you will probably go and buy the trees. You'll plant them. And then you'll deal with the problems as they come along. But maybe this is actually the wrong approach. Instead of asking ourselves what fruit we want to eat, maybe we should be asking our landscape what type of fruit it wants to grow. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of listening to the landscape when you design your food forest. My guest on the show today is Lincoln Smith, who runs Forested, an experimental forest garden site in Bowie, Maryland. He and his team at the 10-acre site test forest gardening methods, and his goal is to produce nutritious food while working with nature rather than against it. We'll dig into the interview in just a minute, but first, I would love to hear from you. If you email in a question or a comment during the live show, or even if you email us just to say hi, we're going to enter you into today's contest. This month's contest prize is a copy of the book, The Modern Homestead Garden, Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard by Gary Pilarczyk, valued at $24.95. To enter the contest, just send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. I look forward to hearing from you. So Lincoln, welcome to the show today. Hello, good to talk to you. So tell me a little bit about forested. It's a food forest, but what does that actually mean? Yeah, well, forested is about 10 years old. And for this period of time, we've been trying to grow food in a way that restores and works with 
the forest of the eastern United States. We're located just outside of Washington, D.C., uh, the mid-Atlantic. So we're trying to figure out what does this ecosystem want to produce and how can we work with that? So how is a, a food forest different from a farm? You, I think it is a type of farm, but it's one that along the spectrum from, say, monoculture at one end and wild forest at the other end of the spectrum, we sit somewhere in the middle there where we're trying to strike a, a balance between wildness for the sake of biodiversity and efficiency uh, enough so that we can derive a yield. So tell me a little bit, how is it that you came to start Forested? What, how did that come about? Well, my background had been landscape design with uh, ecology as an important priority. And as I designed landscapes for a variety of different, mostly residential clients, and we planted native plants and we tried to reduce lawn and, and take care of stormwater runoff. I became more and more interested in the close connection between people and their ecosystem. So it's all very well if we grow native plants in our backyard, but where is the food uh, that sustains us coming from? It's, it's mostly industrial monocultures, which we are lucky to have these systems, but they are also not functioning as well ecologically as they might. So I became more and more intrigued with the idea of how do you reintegrate people with the ecosystem so that the food that lets them live their lives is also coming from a landscape that is, is functioning well as an ecosystem. So, so who was the Lincoln all those years ago who started um, this food forest? And what were your plans and ideas? What did you think it was going to look like? Um, what kinds of fruits uh, and did you think you were going to be growing? And how has that changed over time? Well, I guess I had a list of um, dozens of different things that I wanted to try, uh, which certainly included the usual suspects like apples and pears and also more unusual things like pawpaws that I'm sure you've talked about on your program before. Um, and uh, I guess I decided to start the project when I realized that I would love to do this, even if I don't end up uh, wealthy or, or, or famous or anything like that. By the end of my time on this earth, if I have grown a lot of fruit and try, uh, you know, tried to share the joy of doing that with, with different people in the region, perhaps help them to enjoy doing the same, that would be a satisfying uh, way to live. So that, that was the mindset that I was in at the time when I started it. Okay. So you talk about the usual suspects, you plant them. When did, when was the wake up call? Was there some point where you kind of realized that maybe my first plan isn't working the way I thought it would? Well, sure. Yes. And I planted and killed plenty of trees along the way. Not that I didn't expect that. Uh, but for example, planting into an old cornfield and tobacco field, like that's the site where I am. This soil has been beat on for hundreds of years, pretty low in organic matter from a lot of tillage. And some of the early things that I tried, like cherry trees, um, you know, the Japanese beetles just came up and and uh, ate a lot of the leaves and, and, and I did lose a lot of the early trees. But 
as the years went on, actually, I think it actually took about two years, we would find wild trees starting to come up in the field. And because of because it is a forest garden, we're interested in what comes up naturally. And we don't immediately mow everything. There are large areas that are not mowed, which allows us to observe what type of biodiversity comes up. Sometimes it's wild invasive things uh, that we will eventually remove. But one thing we observed, and I couldn't even identify for a couple of years, is, is tons of little tiny American persimmons. And on the, on the occasion when we would try to remove one of those from the ground, I noticed that the root of this tiny little sprout, the root was often thick and long and uh, well embedded in the soil so that it had actually been there for who knows how many years prior to me starting my project, persisting in the cornfield. So that, that tree existed inside the cornfield and was mowed or tilled or disked uh, from time to time, but survived that kind of treatment. So it's an incredibly tough and well-adapted tree for uh, this particular time and place and soil. Interesting. Okay, so things start popping up that seem to want to be there and you're paying attention. Um, we've got a quick email here. Let's see who it's from. Um, it is from Shaw, and it's uh, Shaw says, hello, Susan. Hello, Lincoln. Does Lincoln work with vegetables as well as fruits? Oh, and I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. Cool. Hello. Uh, yes, I grow some vegetables, although my priority is, is uh, woody perennial crops, nuts and fruits and berries, but I do have vegetable garden areas inside the forest garden and we try to arrange the garden so that there's a good amount of sunlight coming in to those vegetable garden areas, even as the trees grow larger. We try to arrange the trees to allow for sunlight into the vegetable gardens. And I do love some of the unusual perennial uh, vegetables that you might not run into. Sure, we grow tomatoes and peppers and that kind of thing, but we also grow, um, for example, something called sea kale, which is an, a beautiful perennial kale. And just in the last couple of years, we've been growing sochan, which is in the sunflower. No, no, it's, it's in the uh, Black-Eyed Susan family, I believe. And it's a really good green. It was important to the Cherokee Indians. So one of the things I love about forest gardening is there is so much to learn, so much diversity. Our industrial diet is actually much less diverse than most traditional cultures and bringing those foods back into my diet and the diet of the guests that come to the forest garden is a, is a total pleasure. That last one, Sochan, how do you spell that? Uh, S-O-C-H-A-N. Oh, okay. We got to look that one up. Um, we've got an email from Bon writing from Peterborough, Ontario. Bon writes, I'm creating a small food forest in my backyard using permaculture principles. What tips do you have for smaller urban food forest design? Also, what are your thoughts on bare root trees and plants versus pot grown? Mm. Uh, the second one is easier. I do like bare root when I can get it. Uh, if you grow, if you bring in a tree in a pot, I would recommend take the pot off and then carefully remove the soil from those roots and untangle any roots that are going around and around the pot so that you can avoid potential girdling of the tree later as it grows. Um, for a smaller site, I would certainly just bear in mind that you don't have to, you, you, you don't have to and you can't grow all the hundreds of things you might be interested to grow. I mean, speaking from experiences, my house here 
um, I quickly maxed out my area to, to grow. So um, I would say just enjoy the things that you do have space for, and you can produce an enormous amount in a small space, especially if you think vertically, if you try to layer your crops together. That doesn't mean crowding your fruit trees together when they, if a tree wants to become 12 feet wide at maturity, that doesn't mean plant 12 foot wide trees at three feet apart is just going to become a mess unless you have a particular intentional pruning plan. Rather, grow that 12 foot tree that, but above it, you can grow perhaps a nut tree if you have the space for it, or you can make use of the vertical wall space of your house to, to do arbors where you could grow kiwis or, or passion fruit or, or, or other climbers. Um, so you can do a surprising amount in a small, smaller urban space. Those are really great ideas. Um, we've got an email from Pat, and I think it's an email saying hello, because there's nothing written in it. So thank you, Pat. Um, hello. Pat. hello. <laughs> so we were talking about your persimmons, and you were talking about your apple trees. Tell me what happened with the apple tree adventure. Well, we try to grow the most disease resistant varieties we have here, but it's just not in my experience, the best climate for apples uh, in the mid-Atlantic of the Eastern United States. Uh, tree, apple trees around here, they're susceptible to fire blight and scab and cedar apple rust, all of which is pretty high pressure. And then if they survive all of those things, the, the pests set in. And, and, I, and I also, in terms of my particular philosophy, I do not spray any kind of insect pesticides or herbicides in my landscape, which is for a variety of different reasons. One of them just being the practical consideration that we are growing um, more than 100 different species and it's, it's not practical to, to, to do a different care regimen for every one of those plants. So we very much want to see what plants are extremely well suited to this particular landscape and will almost take care of themselves. Um, certainly we go in and we, and we weed and we prune from time to time, but it's pretty minimal. We want to keep, if a plant is going to need lots of babying and changing the soil around and insecticides and herbicides, it's not the right plant for, for this particular system that, that we're trying to employ. That's, that's, uh, I appreciate, um, uh, that because, we want to make it easy for ourselves as much as possible. And sometimes it's like in my introduction, I talk about, you know, we dream of growing apple trees, but actually they are amongst the hardest trees to grow. There are something like 36 different pests that attack apple trees. There are diseases. Um, when we spoke earlier, you described uh, watching your persimmons grow and then looking beside at the apple trees. You said, those apple trees look pretty sad but the persimmons looked really happy. Always. Yep. <laughs> so then you started on a persimmon adventure. Tell me for, as somebody I've never tasted uh, a persimmon, I don't know anything about growing them. What are they like to grow and are there cultivars and, or did you just stick with what you found that was planting itself in your, in your space, in your forest? Sure. Well, when we started to find that there were hundreds and hundreds of wild persimmon trees coming up in the field and eventually figured out what they were, we realized that the land was sending us a strong message like this is what ought to be growing here right now. And persimmons were somewhat on my radar at that point, but they became over time an emphasis in response to, again, what was being offered uh, for free. 
uh, funny little side note, whenever the persimmons are ripe, uh, you find all through the landscape from here and there little fox poops that are full of persimmon seeds. So the foxes, the wild foxes that live in the area, they like to consume this fruit and they're a major, uh, one of the major vectors that, that, that helps move the seed around. And they planted all these little trees through the landscape while it was still a cornfield, probably the foxes out there hunting mice in the cornfield and planting persimmon trees as it goes. So that when we transitioned the field from a cornfield into a forest garden, all these trees were, were there, their root systems were established. And as soon as they stopped being mowed, they sprung up with great speed, a much faster wild growing tree compared to a fruit tree that I might've planted, certainly faster than the apples uh, as an example. Uh, but a persimmon is a, is a neat little native fruit. It is orange in color and, and usually an inch or two in size. The wild ones are decent. The only thing is, as many of you will probably know, you should not eat an underripe persimmon. And if you ever have, you may think that it's the worst fruit in the world because uh, if you if you consume it when underripe, it will turn your face inside out with its astringency. It's, it's very nasty. Um, but you give it a little while and wait until that persimmon turns nice and soft, even a little bit wrinkly. And, uh, and the calyx at the top of it, the little leftover part of the flower, when that pulls off really easily, it's a beautiful, wonderful tasting fruit. So the landscape is offering these things and they, you know, they're, they're good, but they are very seedy and very small. So one thing that we've done over the years is to learn more about persimmons and discover some of the varieties, the selections that have been made. So uh, in the last few weeks, I've been harvesting one, for example, that is called Proc, P-R-O-K. And that is a fruit that's um, at least twice the diameter, probably four times the weight of the wild persimmons that are growing in the area, less seedy, more sweet, more consistent in its quality. So we have, in many cases, the wild trees that are, that are growing already, we will take and cut those and graft them. So we graft onto the wild trees that are growing out with improved varieties of persimmon, which has been a way of, of us having this conversation with the land. It's like, okay, you're offering all these persimmons. Can we take this in a direction where it's a little bit easier for us to use, uh, a little bit easier for, for us to harvest and enjoy, but still working quite close to what the ecosystem is offering us? So essentially, all these new cultivars you're bringing in, you are grafting onto existing root stocks. You're not planting new plants, you're getting scion wood and you are grafting it onto the root stocks, these tuffle root stocks that are already there. Yes. Yep. Okay. And, so and I will, as a side point, I, I will say, like, if let's say you're at home or you're in your neighborhood and you're looking around and seeing what's growing. Even if I were planting persimmon trees, that would be a fine way to do it. If you don't know grafting or aren't inclined to learn it, the wild, the presence of the wild ones there are still a good indicator like, oh, this, this is a good spot to grow a persimmon. So um, whether you graft or you plant based on what you are seeing growing in the, in the landscape, both, is, both can be a successful way of going. But I do love the grafting. It has some special advantages. It's interesting in our uh, local ravine, we've got some crab apple trees and they're doing quite well, not, no disease. So there's a sign. Actually, this might be a good site for apples nearby. Yeah. So it's a great way. And um, I like how you talk about having a conversation with the landscape, a little give and take. We don't just say, okay, you're, you're giving us uh, 
Uh, persimmons, they're good, but they're a little crappy because they got too many seeds. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, let's let's kick it up a notch here. So we've got a few questions. First one, let's see who this is from. Karen from Waterloo, Ontario writes, before we get into the nitty gritty of your guest, I want to know if Lincoln is his real first name. And if so, what is the history behind it? Huh. Okay. And she, she says, I love it. Ah, she thanks, loves your Karen. name. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. My, my, my parents had a family. My dad had a family friend with the name Lincoln growing up. And as it turns out, I, I ended up very tall and skinny. I'm six, five and uh, not a lot of extra weight on me, just like the president. So who knows? Be careful what you name your kids. Uh, they could, they could uh, influence how they turn out. And maybe you'll turn into the president. Who knows? We don't know. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> you got a little time. But anyways, okay. Another, this one is from uh, Lisa. Hello, Susan. Hello, Lincoln. Love what you're doing educating people with food forests. We have a small two-acre property that we are developing into a food forest. We're trying to have a balance between native and food plants. And of course, we want to reduce our lawns. We've planted some nitrogen fixers, black locust, because of poor soil, and some sea buckthorn. However, we're worried that they will be taking over mm. and that we won't be able to contain it. Any advice on this? Thanks. And Lisa says, please enter us into your contest. And of course we will. And I am also voting for that question about sea buckthorn. We'd love to have it in our orchard, but I am concerned about it being a little invasive. So what do you have to say to Lisa? Sure. Well, uh, nitrogen fixation and soil building is a priority for a lot of these projects, for sure, especially if you're in an old uh, agricultural or even residential landscape, the soils can be very low in fertility. So you need to think about how you're going to grow fertility. Um, I have not chosen to bring in sea buckthorn. I'm pretty, uh, so I'll grow fruit of just about any provenance. I'll try it out. Um, for example, around here, Asian pears grow really well. I don't mind that that's a non-native plant. Um, it, it's not an, an invasive plant. Um, I, I am pretty careful with the invasives. Um, so, yeah, and then and then some of the native plants are also they can be aggressive. Uh, black locust is a great example. I, I am I'm in love with black locust. I make many things out of the wood of black locust. It's a wonderful local rot resistant uh, resource. But the ones that I planted in the garden, they love to send up their thorny suckers everywhere. So as a companion plant, I would say um, you know it's going to be best suited to your more outlying areas versus like you don't want that near your vegetable garden, for example, where it's going to start sending up its suckers right into the vegetable garden. Um, great plant, I would definitely grow it, but you are going to, if you want to keep a single stem black locust over time, if you have a sunny site, you're going to need to count on cutting down a bunch of suckers every year over time, which is beneficial, of course, every time you're cutting a nitrogen fixing plant, uh, you are adding to the soil. And, and so whenever we cut any plant out there, whether it's the wild, um, the wild elms or even the, the silly old multiflora rose, whenever you're cutting plant biomass and, and it starts to rot down in the soil, you are helping to build the organic matter. Um, but some of those nitrogen fixtures can be pretty aggressive. Um, in terms of less aggressive ones, I'm forgetting where this uh, um, person is from, but I do love bayberry, um, some of the alders, 
Alnus um, being the, the genus, those are uh, often less aggressive. Amorpha, uh, which is wild indigo bush. And then the one more is uh, partridge pea. That's a, that's a really tiny little self-receding annual nitrogen fixer and super easy. Like you can seed it and it'll form a reasonable good population. But if it ever goes somewhere where you don't want it, it's very easy to remove, unlike some of these deep-rooted persistent nitrogen fixers. So I think you're asking a good question and you're on the right track. Um, include some nitrogen fixers, but yeah, some of them are a bit aggressive. Good for her for thinking in advance. Oh, okay. I think I should be careful here. Uh, we've got an email from Tom in San Diego, California. Hello. I'm brand new to trying to grow a fruit tree. Can Lincoln please tell me now what is the very easiest fruit tree to grow for someone who wants to start growing one? I have absolutely no experience here and I am in zone nine. Thank you. Ha. Ah. Uh, well, that's a great question. Uh, I'm sort of jealous of your climate there. San Diego, I think of as being a very lovely place to grow. Uh, and I'm unqualified to comment on your area. Uh, so I would definitely look up your local, you know, fruit geeks, you know, like if there's a local fruit growing club, or even as you walk around your neighborhood, if you see some fruit that's growing well, there's like, uh, don't ignore that. That is the most useful information you can possibly get. Um, it is amazing how you, that idea of familiarity breeding contempt, like people can totally overlook things that are very well suited to their area just because they're so used to them. But um, uh, yeah, so I can't advise you for San Diego. I haven't ever grown there myself, but I'm, there, it is a great growing zone as far as I know. Pers and also persimmons should grow there. Like maybe you could try the Asian persimmons. I don't know if the American persimmon is native over there, but Asian persimmons, I think grow well. Also uh, to, on that note, I do a mini course. It's just a half hour course called growing fruit trees, a beginner's guide. And that will give you some ideas of what kind of um, plants you might want to grow near you and what you need to do to care for them. So hopefully that helps. So we have an email from Julie uh, from Shelburne Falls, MA, that's Massachusetts, right? Oh, I cool. Yeah, I used to live in Conway, Massachusetts, which is a stone's throw from Shelburne Falls. Oh, so your neighbor, Julie, is writing. Hello, Susan and Lincoln. We're trying to start a community permaculture food forest in Shelburne Falls. 100% of the harvest is to help with food insecurity in our community. Experimenting and just starting year two with 30 mixed variety trees. Can you talk a bit about engaging community to get folks invested in the design of the food forest from the beginning? And also about what you do for organic sprays to limit fruit tree pests. Yeah, well, community engagement is exactly the right question. Over many years of working on community projects, as well as my own, I have come to feel that the people are the more tricky and the more important side of the equation that the that the horticulture stuff is important but if you get that right and nobody's involved what's the point um and american we are pretty disconnected from the land in a lot of ways as a culture so it takes some building back some a lot of engagement as you say so um there's a project near here uh in hyattsville maryland that i designed and they have some people on staff who are excellent at 
putting flyers in the neighborhood and inviting people out to Earth Day, take care of the food forest and enjoy the fruit, uh, those kind of things. It's a it's an ongoing process. And when you start a food forest for a community, um, I would count on that that continuous effort to bring people and engage them and educate them about the space like that's that's going to be almost as much work as taking care of the trees themselves and also very rewarding like um especially with the kids the kids get in there and they start stuffing their face with berries it's just incredibly satisfying and fun for for everyone um the in terms of the sprays i don't use a lot of sprays there is um something called surround, which Susan may know more about than I do. It is a clay. It's merely clay that you can spray onto the trees. Like they spray it onto the apples just after petal fall to try to stop some of the pests, some of the 37 or however many uh, species of pests are going to try to prey on that apple. Um, and because it is just clay, it's not doing anything chemically. Um, but I, I just, in my, I'm not against use of organic and biological pest control. I just don't because I have such a diversity of things and I'm most interested in what plants can live in my particular landscape without that kind of treatment. Excellent. We have lots more questions. And how about this? Let's listen to a few words from our sponsors. And then after the break, we're going to dive into some more wonderful questions. There's a lot of good ones. Are you okay staying on the line for a minute? Glad to. Great. Wonderful. So you are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. We're going to be back right after this little break. Hey gardeners, it's JJ here, your Aussie gardening expert. We all know young, newly planted trees need to be watered deeply and regularly to kickstart growth. But correct irrigation just isn't as easy as you would think. Sprinklers waste bucket loads of water and they wet the leaves and branches which can result in the spread of nasty fungal diseases. At Greenwell, we have a system to direct the water deep down into the soil to the roots of your trees where it's needed most. But watering takes time. So municipalities across North America, Europe and Australia are now saving time and money by using Greenwell water savers for newly planted trees. So why don't you? Dig the easy to install recycled plastic rings into the soil around your young trees. Then each week, you can fill the rings with up to 50 litres of water and that water filters deep down into the root system where it is needed. Think of Greenwell water savers as your insurance policy for young trees. Learn more at greenwellwatersavers.com. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, 
In our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalogue. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffletree Nursery. Call us today. If you're listening to this show, you are passionate about fruit trees. But, do you care how your trees are grown? Silver Creek Nursery is a family-owned business, and we grow our fruit trees sustainably using only organic inputs. We stock a huge range of cultivars, like Wolf River, an apple tree that produces fruit so large you can make an entire pie with just one apple. We also carry red-fleshed apples, like Pink Pearl, as well as heirloom and disease-resistant varieties of apples, pears, apricots, cherries, and more. We ship our trees across Canada, and we can also supply you with berry canes and edible companion plants to plant near your trees. At Silver Creek Nursery, we grow fruit trees for a sustainable food future. Learn more about us at silvercreeknursery.ca. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board right now, send us an email. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. In the show today, we've been talking about listening to the landscape when you're planting fruit trees. If you look around the neighborhood and the apple trees nearby don't look like they're thriving, then maybe you shouldn't plant an apple tree. <laughs> the landscape might be telling you to try something else. Maybe you should try a serviceberry tree, a cherry tree, or a plum tree. So in today's show, we're talking to food forest design expert, Lincoln Smith. He runs Forested, a 10-acre experimental forest garden in Bowie, Maryland. And over the years, he's learned a lot from his landscape. His landscape is not too crazy about apple trees, which struggle on the site, but it loves persimmons, which grow with ease in that location. So in a minute, we're going to talk some more about, about Lincoln's favorite plants. But before we continue on, I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments during the live show, please email them to us right now 
at instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And we will enter you into this month's contest. And this month's contest prize is a book called The Modern Homestead Garden, Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard. It's by Gary Polarczyk, and it's valued at $24.95. Okay, so send us an email, and we look forward to hearing from you. So Lincoln, okay, we've got some more questions here. Uh, This one is from Pat, who emailed us earlier. I thought just to say hi, there was nothing written in there. But this is what Pat says. Hello again, Susan. Actually, I hit send too soon. Heard you speak of growing vertically in today's show. Does espalier fit into your current or future plans? Thanks as always, Patrick. I think espalier is a really cool technique for those with small spaces and a lot of patience and consistency in how they maintain uh, their landscape. Um, if you're a person that really likes to be out there every, you know, at least weekly or more often, and you like pinching off the little side growths that aren't needed to create your beautiful espalier, you'll, you'll likely succeed. I don't personally use it, uh, over the 10 acre site. I'm not all that short on space. I also don't tend to do it for my clients designs unless they already know what it is and they're, and they're sure that they, that they like that. Um, that said, if you have a nice sunny wall, I think planting in front of it is certainly a good thing to do around here in the mid-Atlantic where we're sort of right on the edge of where pomegranates and figs and, and um, like fayoas and stuff like that are able to grow. I love a nice sunny south facing wall uh, to grow those kind of shrubs in front of them and, and uh, see if they'll fruit well and they, and they often do. Um, we have an email from Jim. I appreciate this, Jim. Jim writes, here's an interesting article about Sochan. Uh, which you spoke about earlier, an edible plant, and it is, it looks like it's a Rudbeckia, so it's Black-Eyed Susan family. Um, So he sends a a website, foragerchef.com slash Sochan. I'm going to look at that. Thank you, Jim. That sounds interesting. Next, we've got an email here. Um, Small sidebar on on Sochan. We do chef dinners here, and at one of our breakfasts over the summer, we served Sochan for the first time. Uh, we cooked it up over the fire and then used it as uh, one of the ingredients in our omelets. Uh, we have we have a flock of ducks out here, so it's a duck egg omelet with sochan and a variety of other vegetables, and it has a lovely, uh, a lovely flavor. It's a really good green. Oh, I'm really excited about that. That's awesome. I'm uh, quite an omelet person myself, so ooh, that sounds yummy. Okay, we've got Lori writing us. Hello, brand new listener to your radio show from Mississauga, Ontario. Is Lincoln planning any trips, tours, or seminars up here in Canada? Yeah, good question. When are you coming to Canada? Huh. Well, you have a lot of really great growers up there. Uh, you may not need uh, my mid-Atlantic perspective, um, but uh, I do love Canada, and I'm jealous of your service berries. Uh, it seems like much of Canada is prime, and we can grow them down here. And that's like just, I mean, there's so many things that are almost my favorite fruit, but that's definitely one of my many favorite fruits. And if you're growing service, if you're not growing them, please grow them. Uh, Canada, please grow uh, (laughs) service berries in all your backyards. And um, if you ever have too many, they dry beautifully into like a dried service berry raisin. They were used heavily by the Native Americans as part of pemmican, which is a dried meat pounded with uh, dried berries, um, a, a wonderful travel food. 
So um, you're a great service berry growing area, but that's about all I can probably advise you. Lincoln, do you know want to know what the problem with service berries is? Uh, sure. Cedar They're so tasty that you go and harvest and you eat most of them and then there's nothing to bring home. Like there's lots of fruit, yeah. but you just kind of stuff it in your face and it's yeah. just so delicious. Yeah. So that's I, the problem. I can pick all day long on service berries and fill gallons and gallons and still be stuffing my face at the end of the day. <laughs> it's like most fruits I get satiated or, you know, sort of sick of the taste long, much earlier than with service berries. Uh, it's something about them. They're magical. They are magical. Okay. This is from Holly. Hello. I'm a brand new listener to your show. I'm so glad Holly's with us. Um, I'm loving it. And I live in, are you ready? Where does Holly live? Lincoln, Nebraska. What a coincidence <laughs> that this is your first show. And Lincoln Smith is our guest. That's amazing. One more email here. Let's see what we've got. Okay, so Jim, James, James writes here, uh, relating to Julie's email, uh, Julie was talking about creating a food forest. So J James writes, maybe Julie could check out the Community Food Forest Handbook. That's a really nice book. And um, James is from the School of Forestry, so he would know uh, from Arizona. So Community Food Forest Handbook, I've seen that one. It's a good one. Yeah, Kathy There's, Zukowski. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's a good one to check out. We've got one more email here um, from Wichita, Kansas. That's from Larry. <laughs> Larry writes, Lincoln is 6'5". Forget farming. How about basketball? <laughs> Love the show. Yeah, not bad idea. Can you do basketball and farming? I don't know. I do volleyball. <laughs> Volleyball's good too. That's yeah. excellent. What I lack in skill, I make up for in height. <laughs> That's perfect. Okay, so I wanted to talk about some of the other plants that your landscape told you that it wanted to grow. Um, can you give me some other plants that just grow really, really well there and are easy for you? Sure, and I'll try to pick just a couple. Um, here's an interesting one, mulberry. So if you've had mulberries, maybe many of your listeners have had them, you might think of them as a sort of a, an okay, but not that wonderful fruit. If, if that's the case, I would encourage you to try to get your hands on some of the selections of mulberry. Um, there's one that I grow that seems to like it here called Illinois Everbearing Mulberry. And there are several other wonderful selections where the fruit is much, um, much more complex and a little bit better tartness and, and just is one of the best fruits in the landscape. It's a total favorite of, of all the kids that visit uh, my particular garden here. Um, and, um, you know, as a side point on mulberry, the, the selections that grow well around here, they tend to be <clears throat> hybrids of the native red mulberry and the introduced white mulberry. Uh, and the introduced white mulberry is somewhat invasive the reason why I chose to grow it in my particular landscape is that the landscape is already full of wild invasive mulberries. So in that sense, I didn't feel that I was bringing something to the site that didn't already have an established population. And so, you know, where the wild plants, they produce an okay quality of fruit and there's so many of them across the whole neighborhood, we're not gonna eliminate them at this point. Um, this is a super easy to grow plant and I highly recommend it. 
Um, interesting in terms of the red, the native red mulberry, there is uh, here in Ontario a very small population that they have to protect. Mm. What is it about them that they they somehow die off in the face of competition from the white mulberries? Or are they mixing too much? Yeah, I mm, I know they hybridize, and that can <clears throat> mean that eventually you don't have you know pure strains of uh, you know the original species. Um, and, uh, but I, in terms of the, the exact dynamic, I don't know what's going on. Um, it's kind of sad. I would like to, at some point, I keep meaning to do a show on it. I don't know if it's something we can save, uh, just having a little sanctuary for the red mulberry. Um, what about, I understand that you guys do raspberries well, that your landscape likes raspberries. For sure. Yes. The native black raspberry rubus occidentalis is all over the place in our woods edge. Um, maybe it is too up there in Toronto area. Um, anyway, uh, so even coming onto the site when it was a cornfield, all around the outside is black raspberries and it's a, it's a fabulous fruit. And um, incidentally, it does love to grow. We also have a lot of black walnut and people are familiar with the fact that black walnut produces juglone, which will suppress the growth of certain other plants. It's allelopathic and people, um, people kind of know that sometimes fear it, but black raspberries and many others um, tolerate it just fine. Indeed, we almost always seem to find black raspberries under black walnuts. So it may be that uh, certain other things being suppressed is good for the black raspberry. So if you have black walnuts, it, I, I would definitely give a, give a shot to black raspberries. Um, they tolerate some amount of shade and still fruit well. And uh, very low care. So based on the wild ones being present in the landscape, we have, like with the persimmons, tried to make a collection. We try to get every variety of selected black wall, raspberry that we can and grow those. Um, there's one that's fruiting right now, which is extremely late. Now it's almost October. Um, very late for a black raspberry. It's called Sweet Repeat. And that is a variety that fruits in the spring along with all the other black raspberries and also fruits again in the fall so it's it's been really fun to learn some of these um, selections of black raspberry and they're happy here which we were pretty confident of based on the wild ones so let's say you are designing a food forest for somebody what is it that you do when you go to the site how how do you speak to the landscape how do you find out is this something that takes time or can you give people a head start by just looking at their landscape? I, I look at the site itself, of course, but if it's, a, say, a suburban area or, um, or even urban, I will also try to take the time to visit local forests and fields, if any, you know, a variety of different ages of forest type landscapes so that I can see what type of a forest naturally occurs here. Cause it does, it varies quickly as you move across the landscape, obviously, whether you're in a lowland, like down by the stream, something, a different forest community will grow in wet soil versus up on the hilltop where it's dry. And like here I am in, 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 a, in the coastal plain, which is very sandy out to the east of Washington, DC. But if you go out to the west of Washington, DC, up you get into the Piedmont and then the mountains and different sets of trees grow in those places. Um, and, and trees and indeed whole forest communities. So what you can do is go and sort of key into what are the main 
trees growing. Um, for example, like around Bowie, Maryland, where I am, you often find tulip poplar forests. Like tulip poplar is a, is a second growth, you know, after a land was farmed and let go, it, it often turns into tulip poplar. In the streams that run through these tulip poplar forests, you'll often find pawpaw trees down by the stream side and in the swampy areas. So if you go into a landscape and you're seeing tulip poplars, uh, maybe you're not seeing pawpaw trees, but if it's a, it's a sort of a swampy stream situation in a tulip poplar forest or in a, in a suburban yard, perhaps it's a little boggy and it backs up to a tulip poplar forest, this is very likely to be a pawpaw type of uh, an environment. So that, that's the sort of thinking that I try to use when, when going into a new uh, piece of land. So it's, it's like there's no one size fits all solution. It's uh, when I started to grow uh, fruit trees, the reason I wrote my book is because I found books about fruit tree care or different cultivars and I'm reading them. And I spoke to the park supervisor that I was working with to start our community forest, our community garden and our community orchard. And I said, oh, I'd like this cultivar and that cultivar. And he said, well, Susan, um, we don't have these in Canada. They were like zone eight for somewhere else. And I felt like I needed to write a book for people like me, wherever they were, so that they could research local things that yeah. will work for them. So I think if there's one lesson uh, from speaking to you, it's that you've developed a really wonderful sensitivity to the landscape. And instead of dominating the landscape, you are collaborating with it. Yeah, that's, that's the goal. Yep. And there's always more to learn. There's so much more going on in the landscape than any of us can know. It's a wonderful, complex network of different organisms. Um, but yeah, definitely start with that and make use of the online groups. No matter where you are, there's probably a local uh, Facebook group or meetup or something among people that have been growing fruit for a while and, and can give you such a huge head start so that you don't have to waste quite as much of your time growing things that aren't as well suited to your to your locale. Well, I think before we finish up, I want to hear what, what was your biggest oops in the whole time? Was mm -hmm. there one thing that stands out at you? It's like, oops, that didn't work. Um, I've learned my lesson. Mm. Yeah. So hard to pick. <laughs> there have been a lot of oopses. Um, hmm. Well, I was just harvesting shiitakes yesterday, shiitake mushrooms. Do not let your mushroom logs dry out. That is that is an oops. Um, I know that's a not a fruit thing. Um, let's see. I guess maintenance. Like you, you want to. I would say try to grow a, a number of plants that is really sustainable for you to take care of. Because if you if you go really big especially those plant catalogs, those beautiful nursery catalogs, all the beautiful fruit pictured, like those are great information, but they will also tend to like it. What it sounds great in February, but when it's, when it's July and it's 95 degrees out and very humid and the weeds are just going bonkers um, and you have to get through, uh, you know, an acre of an, an acre doesn't sound like much, but it can be a lot when you're, when you're doing, uh, you know, you got a full-time job and you just come home from work and you, and you got to go take care of your, your little mini orchards. Um, so, uh, I have occasionally bitten off more than I can chew, 
um, or done so on behalf of clients. And so I try to get a very good sense now with clients of who's taking care of this landscape um, and, uh, and, and start with the things that you're most excited and jazzed and inspired about um, and then add more things over time. But there's, there's no terrible rush with this stuff. Oh, I think that's such a good idea. Start small and expand slowly because if you buy all the trees all at once and then you realize, oh, maybe they should have been disease resistant or whatever, I think that's great advice. We have one more email. Okay, Michael is from Eagle River, Alaska. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for the show. Could you speak on how the topography of the land can affect the planning for a food forest? Is there a topography that is preferred? And what are some of the gotchas to watch out for? Well, one, interestingly, I have come to prefer starting a forest garden on an open site versus trying to work with an existing forest. And you can do both things. There is a great field. You often in the United States is called non-timber forest products, where you are growing mushrooms and herbs and vegetables that are tolerant of the shade. But um, in terms of sort of the macro picture, I think what gives me a lot of satisfaction is bringing land back into forest that had been field or non-forest because you're, you're reestablishing a functional landscape and you do have a lot more light to work with. You tend to have poorer soil than what you would find in the forest, but you have that light. And uh, when I design forest gardens and indeed mine, even where we're starting from an open field, I have a thinning plan. I don't want it to become dark. Uh, you know, I, as my nut trees grow, uh, somewhere around 20 years in, we will be thinning these nut trees out because I still want to be growing berries underneath. And, and this is, again, drawing on what the Native Americans were doing. Um, you, you can choose to create a forest garden that has a dark closed canopy, but then you're, there's less and less berries and, and understory fruits that are going to want to grow in total darkness. So um, topography wise, I tend to look for uh, an open situation, or if I'm going into an existing forest, I'm going to look at harvesting some of those trees for, for lumber uh, or, or other uses uh, to open up new opportunities for growing fruit in the, in the lower layers. That's a great question, Michael. Thank you for, for asking that. Um, okay, it's time to find out who won the prize. Gary, are you going to help us with that? I'm going to help you. I have all those great names in a bucket. I'm going to shake the bucket. And when Lincoln tells me to stop, I will stop shaking the bucket and I will draw a name. So you ready, Lincoln? I'm ready. Here we go. Listen up. Shaky, shaky. Shaky, shaky. Stop. <laughs> I like shaky, shaky. Okay, <laughs> our winner is. Well, this is funny. Bon Scott from Peterborough, Ontario. Bon, you know you have an ACDC singer name? Ooh, and that's wow. from Bon Scott, Peterborough, Ontario. Yay, Bon. Good for you. You're the winner. That's great. It's a really interesting book. So the book is called Micro Food Gardening project plans and plants for growing fruit and veggies in tiny spaces. Oh, wait, I think I'm mixing it up. That's not the book. It's a different book, isn't it? I think that's not the book. Let's see what you've won. Well, whichever book, it's a great old... prize. It's a great prize. Whatever it is, it's a great prize. Oh, here it is. You've got the Modern Homestead Garden, 
Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard. That's the one that you've won by Gary Polarchik. So congratulations, Bon. And I want to thank you very much, Lincoln, for coming on the show today. So it was so much fun to talk to you. We have spoken before the very, very first episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast. And this was many years ago. You were the guest. And I had we talked about acorn trees and acorn flower. And it was a fabulous show. And somehow that show got lost in the ether. So uh, that's the only podcast I don't have. Is that sad or what? That's it great. is. <laughs> the oak well, trees are still out there making, making acorns. Well, we'll talk about that another time. We're going to have to get you back to talk about that another time. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and um, I really appreciate you being here. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, maybe about acorn flower. Yeah, it's been fun talking to you. If anybody wants to, my website is forested.us and there is a forest garden design guide there. It's not long, but it is illustrated um, ideas that you can use when you're planning out your forest garden. And the way it's set up is like, you can download that for free if you give me your email address um, and then you'll be on my email list. And I send about an email a month about forest garden stuff. Oh, I have to get myself on that list. Somehow I'm not on your list. Okay. I get the food. I look forward to getting the guide. Forested okay. So tell us again, your website. What is yeah, your website? It's forested.us. Okay. Everybody sign up and let's, let's see what we can learn from Lincoln. That sounds great. Thanks Lincoln. Thanks, Susan. So I want to end the show today with a little bit of news and some updates for the orchard people community. Recently, I told you that this radio show won an award. We won a silver medal from GardenCom, which is the Garden Communicators International Group. And that was an award for best radio program overall. So I really want to thank the listeners for your participation in the show, because that's what makes it so special. And I'm also really grateful for my amazing guests and all the experts who come and join me on the show well, recently, I also discovered that my website at orchardpeople.com won a gold medal. Yay! It was a gold medal of achievement for overall website, and I'm really happy about that. So if you haven't visit, visited orchardpeople.com yet, I hope you will come and check it out. You're going to find in-depth articles and podcasts and courses and all sorts of good stuff. Finally, before we wrap up the show, I want to thank those of you who are leaving reviews for this show on iTunes or on your podcatcher. It really means a lot to me. So thanks to Mike. This is a recent one, a lovely one. Thanks to Mike who left this message. Mike writes on iTunes, a great find in podcast land. With a library of 70 episodes, anyone who's interested in growing fruit can find something that gets their attention. The guests are terrific, the topics are timely and informative, and most of all, there is an underlying, an underlying theme of working with nature instead of against her in trying to maximize quality, production, and joy in one's fruit growing endeavors. Mikey, Mike, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So for all of those of you guys who are sending um, in feedback and writing little reviews, keep it coming. It makes me feel wonderful. So that's it for today's show. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner.
and I look forward to seeing you guys again next month. Listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com/podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month, and each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.